We thank you, Lord, for your word that we've just heard read. And we um, do pray again as we think about it now that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us to be the righteous who live by faith in you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've been thinking about the um, problem of God and of suffering and evil, I want to start this last talk by uh, mentioning a couple of people who are not Christian and what their take is on the problem of suffering and evil. The first one's fairly anecdotal. It's a close friend of mine. He was um, best man at my wedding. Uh, he, he's a fellow Jew, uh, not a Christian though. And uh, he went overseas some time back for several years and uh, spent quite some time in India. And uh, like many other Jewish people, he uh, thought he found enlightenment in India. And when he came back, he was full of talk about God and spirituality. And how did his newfound spirituality help him to understand the problem of suffering and evil? Well, basically his answer was, stuff happens. Uh, the, the first word actually wasn't stuff, it was another word starting with S, but it was stuff happens. It's karma, it's fate, it's just the way it is, stuff happens. That was his profound solution to the problem of suffering and evil. I'm not sure how much comfort that would be to, say, an Indian mother who had just lost her son. The second person I want to talk about is uh, a rabbi, Rabbi Harold Kushner, who wrote a best-selling book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Uh, I went to synagogue in Sydney to um, hear him actually speak about his book and its thesis and uh, the synagogue was packed to capacity. People were hanging off his every word. And I have to say, Harold Kushner speaks from experience about suffering. His own son suffered the uh, horrible disease called progeria, which is rapid ageing. And so he and his wife saw their son grow old and die before the age of 20 right in front of their eyes. So Harold Kushner knows what suffering is about. What he did was he studied the book of Job. And to cut a long story short, his conclusion from the book of Job was basically that God is not all-powerful. God wants to stop the evil and suffering in our world. He would if he could, but he can't. So God allows bad things to happen to good people because there's nothing he can do about it. I think that sort of idea of Harold Kushner, Rabbi Kushner, where God can't stop evil and is not in control of our world is actually terrifying. Uh, If God's judgment sounds bad, I think that is far more terrifying that a world that is out of control and in chaos where stuff happens, God would love to stop it, but he can't. I think that's about the best our world can come up with as a solution to the problem of suffering and evil. God is not all-powerful and he can't stop the evil. God sees the terrorism, the abuse, the persecution, the suffering. He wishes he could stop it, but he can't. The God of the Bible, though, as we've seen in Habakkuk, is completely different from such an impotent God. The real God is in control of our world and of everything that happens in it. Now, of course, we can't ascribe evil to God. The Bible makes that clear. He's perfectly holy and good. But he's also in complete control of everything and all evil that happens in the world. God can stop evil and suffering. The real God cannot tolerate evil. His eyes are too pure to look on sin and he will judge the world in righteousness. The God of the Bible is angry with sin and will act to judge it 
and he can and does do something about evil and suffering. We've seen that Habakkuk was distressed by the evil around him and we should be distressed by all the evil we see around us more and more. Habakkuk, as he was distressed about the evil he saw around him, wanted to know why God wasn't doing something to stop it. And God's given his answer, as we've seen, that he would punish sin and evil, first in his own people and then in the Babylonians who he would bring against them. God would judge the Babylonians. The God of the Bible, the real God, does take action against evil and would do something about suffering, but not always straight away. And so Habakkuk and those with him who trusted in God needed to wait patiently in faith for God to come and act and to deal with the problem of suffering and evil. The God of the Bible, the real God, is not impotent, is not unable to stop suffering and evil, but he does it in his time and with his all-knowing perspective. In the last session, the first verse of chapter 2 we saw in chapter 2 verse 1 that Habakkuk was waiting for God's reply to his complaint and he said after that he would give then his response to what God said. And so here now we look at chapter 3, we've seen God's reply in chapter 2, chapter 3 is now Habakkuk's response to all that he has learnt. And his response comes in the form of a psalm. Uh, verse 1 actually calls it a prayer, which it also is, but it's also a psalm and a rare example of a psalm outside the book of the Psalms, the only one in the prophets, as I'm pretty sure. And as a psalm, it means that it was to be set to music and sung. It would actually help God's people, as they worshipped God, to remember the words of Habakkuk so that in times of suffering, uh, they would have these words in memory as they sing them. So you'll notice at the end of verse 1, uh, it says, according to Shigionot which we think is probably a musical reference. And uh, you might notice right at the end of the chapter, it says, to the choir master with stringed instruments. And three times on the way through, Chris was a bit naughty, I hope this means that I won't miss out on dinner tonight, but he didn't read this on the way through. Three times it says the word seller, which is part of the text. And again, we're not sure what that means, like she or not, but it's probably a musical reference. So this is clearly a a psalm that's to be sung by the people of God in worship. So let's have a look at what the psalm says. Habakkuk starts in verse 2 with his prayer. He says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. So Habakkuk starts there by saying he's heard the report about God. That is, he's heard about what God has done in the past. From his perspective, he knows about how God saved the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, how he brought them into the promised land and gave them their own place. So Habakkuk knows the great past events of God's salvation. And of course, we read the Old Testament and we know those past acts of salvation of the exodus and the conquest into the promised land, but far more than Habakkuk knew, we know of God's ultimate act of salvation in giving Jesus to die on the cross and pay for our sins. And so we look back to that, the ultimate act of salvation. As Habakkuk looks back to the exodus and the conquest, we look back to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Habakkuk says, verse 1, he's heard this report about God, his past acts of salvation. And so, verse 2, he fears God's work. That is, he stands in awe of God's almighty power. 
the awesome almighty God of the universe. He's not an impotent God standing on the sidelines, watching our sufferings, wringing his hands in despair, hoping that, wishing that he could do something to stop it. The almighty, awesome God of the universe has acted in the past to save his people and his actions are awesome, awe-inspiring. They cause his people to fear him, as indeed we should. Hope the application of the first half of verse 2, the important verse, is um, hope the application is fairly obvious. That we need to remind ourselves again and again of God's past acts of salvation. That's why we're reading the Old Testament together today. We need to look at the Old Testament and see God's past acts of salvation there and see how they were indeed fulfilled. And of course, we need to look back to the cross, to the death and resurrection of Jesus and remind ourselves of how God has acted to save us there. And I think Christians who read their Bibles often are confident Christians because as you're reminded of God's past acts of salvation, ultimately in Jesus but also throughout the Old Testament, we're reminded again and again of how God does step into the world to act and to save. Well, Habakkuk's prayer is calling on God to act in the present, in his time, as he has in the past. As he remembers the past acts of God, he prays in verse 2, in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. Or as the NIV puts it, renew them in our day, in our time, make them known. Habakkuk saying he doesn't want to see the evil and suffering around him just go on and on as it is. He wants God to step in now and do something about it as he has in the past. And we should want that too. We should be praying that God's kingdom would come, that God would bring Jesus again and bring an end to suffering and evil or that he would judge in this lifetime and bring an end to evil. But as we've seen, when God comes, as I've said, it will be a total and thorough judgment. He will judge each person for every wrong thing they have said every wrong thought they have had, every wrong deed they have done. And so at the end of verse 2, Habakkuk also prays to God that in wrath he would remember mercy. Because if God doesn't show mercy, no one will be saved. But of course we know that God has answered Habakkuk's prayer and he has shown mercy. His wrath was poured out on Jesus on the cross who drank the cup of God's wrath in our place. And in enormous mercy and love, he has wiped the slate clean, forgiven us our sins and assured us of eternal life. God has remembered mercy in his judgment for us. Habakkuk's prayer then essentially is that God would come and act in his time as he has in the past. In the Bible though, salvation is always accompanied with judgment because what you're actually saved from is God's judgment. So, verses 3 to 15, we now have a poem, a psalm, that poetically describes God coming to judge. He comes to judge his enemies, but that is what saves his people. It's in two halves, and the first half is in verses 3 to 7. So, if you look at verse 3, it says, God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Now, um, Teman and Mount Paran are in the south, in uh, Edom, around Sinai, to the south of the Promised Land. 
And this is describing God coming as he came and brought his people from Egypt into the promised land again. It describes him coming from the south up towards the promised land. And verse 3 continues this description of God's coming. It says, His splendour covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. So briefly, it's a description that when God comes to act, his praise and his glory will fill the universe, fill the creation, the heavens and the earth. And his coming here is described as brilliant, blinding light. We're reminded perhaps of 1 Timothy chapter 6 which talks about how God dwells in unapproachable light. In blinding light, God comes. And amidst this awesome picture of the coming of God, we're reminded in verse 5 that he comes in judgment. It says, before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. So that's a description reminiscent of the Exodus that God comes here with the plagues of Egypt to judge those oppressing his people and to rescue them from the hands of those who hate them. This awesome coming of God continues there in verse 6 that he stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. So as the coming of God is described here in verse 6, God reaches his destination and he comes to a halt. He stood. He stops. And you get a metaphor now of a great earthquake that God looks at the nations and judges them. He shakes the nations. Cushan and Midian again are to the south of the promised land. They tremble in distress as God judges the nations. And as he shakes the nations, the whole of creation is shaken. The eternal mountains are scattered. The everlasting hills sink low. The mountains and hills, their sense creation, are shaken and removed. As the NIV puts it, the mountains crumble and the hills collapse. They're called here everlasting or eternal in that they've been there since creation, so they're said to be eternal. Of course, they're not really. God's judgment removes them like dust. And we're reminded at the end of verse 6, only God's ways are eternal, everlasting. So verses 3 to 7 of this psalm present this terrifying picture of God's coming in judgment. So what do we want God to do about the suffering and evil we see around us in the world? We want him to come blazing into the world and to smash evil and do away with it and this is saying he will. He will come in judgment. He will shake the nations who tremble in horror and fear before his judgment. He will come blazing into the world like an earthquake beyond imagination. He will come in power and wrath to judge the nations. He will act and will save his people. The second half of the psalm from verse 8 onwards describes God's coming in this way as a a great warrior who comes to deal with the enemies of his people and to save them. Uh, Have a look at verse 8. It says, Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. So it's a funny question in a way. It's saying to God, was he angry with the rivers and the seas? And of course he wasn't. The passage will make it clear he's angry with the nations 
and the nations particularly who are oppressing his people. But it raises this picture language of the seas because God brought his people through the sea at the Exodus when he punished their enemies. And he brought them across the River Jordan into the Promised Land. So it's as he's saved his people and acted to save them in the past, so it's pictured again that he is coming to act and to save his people. And as he does, he's described as a warrior with his horses and chariots, bow and arrows. Um, I don't know if that seems a, a bit quaint, but it's picture language. It's describing the coming of God in terms of the military might of Habakkuk's day. Uh, if, we, if we kept the picture language, I suppose we could talk about uh, guided missiles and fighter jet planes and nuclear weapons. And But the point is, in terms of the picture language, that God will fight on behalf of his people and he will win. No military might can possibly stand against him, not that of the Babylonians or of anybody else. So he comes here to conquer the nations. And God is angry and is very powerful. The God of the Bible is not an ineffectual, soft, impotent God wishing that he could stop the evil but powerless to do so. And Habakkuk did have it wrong at first. God will not sit back in silence and do nothing. God will come blazing into our world to deal with the nations and to judge them. And God will not tolerate evil. He will not tolerate injustice. He will not tolerate sin. Verse 8 speaks of his wrath, his anger, his indignation. God is furious with evil and suffering and comes in judgment to deal with it. Verse 9 says, You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. Here the imagery is from the flood in Noah's time. Uh, The deep are the waters which covered the mountains in the time of Noah and here they threaten the mountains which writhe in anguish and the whole creation is convulsing there in verse 10, a bit like the same with the earthquake in verse 6, convulsing in the fear of the coming judgment of God. So we have imagery here from the flood, from the exodus and from the conquest. And verse 11 continues that imagery again from the conquest this time that as the sun and moon stood still in the time of Joshua, so again they'll stand still when God comes in judgment. Verse 11 says, The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. There is a difference though uh, between Joshua's time and here. In Joshua's time the sun and moon stood still in the heavens. Uh, This time they stand still in that they don't even come out. They don't come out into the heavens. There's no need. As verse 4 talked about the brilliant light of God when he comes, here it talks about the brilliant light flashing off his arrows and the spear and so there's no need for the sun and moon to come out. This is a description literally of God coming blazing into the world to save his people and to judge his enemies. Verse 8 reminded us he comes in anger and wrath. Verse 12 says, You marched through the earth in fury, He threshed the nations in anger. It's saying God will come and act in fury, in anger. He will judge the nations and all people. He won't sit back in silence and do nothing. And it's judgment that will be needed to save his people. Have a look at verse 13. It says, You went out for the salvation of your people 
for salvation with your anointed. I'll just slightly change the translation there. I think that's right. That God will save his people and he'll save them with his anointed king or Messiah. In the Bible, salvation always comes through judgment, as I said, and so he saves his people by judging the Babylonians. Verse 13 goes on to speak of that. It says, He crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. That's saying there in verse, into verse 13 that God will crush the head or the leader of the Babylonians. Verse 14, he will defeat his warriors, his army, who will invade Judah and conquer it. God will judge the Babylonians and save his people. And as I said, he did. 70 years later, in 538 BC. But, but as I said in the last talk, God often judges in this lifetime not only at the end, but even if he doesn't, we know that he has set a day when he will judge the world. When Jesus returns, everyone will stand before God in judgment and God will judge every tyrant, every abuser, every criminal, every terrorist, but God will also judge us. He will judge every person for every wrong thing we have said or done or thought. His wrath will be poured out on all evil he will come blazing into our world to deal with it once and for all and he will judge every last bit of evil, including ours. And the only escape from that judgment of God is that we put our trust in Jesus who drank the cup of God's wrath for us. Only by trusting in him can we be spared from God's judgment. Habakkuk has prayed that God would act that he'd act again to come as he has in the past, to come and save his people. But God's judgment is a terrifying prospect. And so have a look in verse 16 at Habakkuk's response to God's judgment. He says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Habakkuk here is dumbstruck and terrified at this vision of God's judgment. It's actually a bit hard to know whether it's the judgment of the Babylonians that will come on the people of Judah or whether it's God's judgment that will come on the Babylonians. But either way, the judgment is terrifying. And so Habakkuk fears God and he trusts him. Initially we saw this morning that Habakkuk complained to God that he seemed to be doing nothing about suffering in the world. But now he's learned his lesson, I think. He trusts God even more. His faith has grown by the end of the book and so at the end of verse 16, listen to what he says. He says, Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Habakkuk knows that God will judge the Babylonians, that he will put an end to injustice and suffering and evil. Habakkuk is one of the righteous who live by faith so he says he will wait quietly, patiently, for God to come and act. He'll trust God and he'll wait in faith for him. But even as he waits, he says he can rejoice in God's salvation. Verses 17 to 18, I reckon, are some of the best words in the Bible. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, 
The produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk describes there a devastating scene. Some people have said that it's almost like a, a war zone, like the aftermath of when the Babylonians come, but it's got to be more than that. There's, there's nothing. Food and income, sustenance, everything has failed. Habakkuk's saying if everything fails, he will still rejoice in God. He can still have joy in God, his Saviour. His faith has grown to the point he knows now nothing can separate him from the love of God. Nothing can take away his relationship with God. No matter how bad things get, he can wait patiently for God to come and act and save his people and in the meantime he can rejoice in God's salvation. And it's pretty amazing he says that before the coming of Jesus. Well, I should ask, what about you? Do you rejoice in God's salvation? It's something I've often prayed for myself and prayed for fellow Christians that we would have joy in God's salvation, that even in suffering and pain, even in adversity or persecution, that we would still rejoice in God's salvation. So do you have joy in God's salvation? What if things really did get bad for you? For those who are working, what if you lost your job? What if you lost someone close to you? What if there was a terrorist attack in Australia? What if there was a terrible natural disaster or a war? What if you got sick and God wasn't answering your prayers to get better? Could you still rejoice in God? I often like to plug Matthias Media. If you've never heard of that, you definitely want to get their stuff and go to their website. Brilliant stuff. Matthias Media has one particular Bible study booklet called Seven Basic Bible Studies or Just for Starters. And um, in the fifth study on prayer, it reminds us that we should always be thanking God in prayer. And it asks the question, why will there always be things you can thank God for? Why will there always be things you can thank God for? I've done that study with many people and usually the answer is, well, God will always bless us. He'll always keep giving us good things and our food and clothing and shelter and so on. But these verses in Habakkuk, like verse 17, is saying, but what if he even took that away? What if God took away everything? Why would there still be something you could thank God for? And the answer is because nothing can take away from you your salvation in Christ. If you trust in Jesus, nothing can take that away. Sickness, disaster, terrorism, nothing can take away that Jesus has died and paid for your sins. Christians who are firmly focused on the cross, on Jesus' death and resurrection, are confident Christians and thankful Christians and joyful Christians. That even in the worst of circumstances, even if, as Habakkuk puts it, everything around us goes wrong. We can still rejoice in God's salvation because nothing can take away the fact that Jesus has died and paid for our sins. The fact that God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, that he gave his own son to die for you and for me, is amazing. Of course it should give us joy. And so it pains me when I see fellow Christians who seem to go up and down depending on their circumstances because I think they're relating to God more through their present experience 
rather than through the cross. And so when things go badly, they struggle in their faith because I think their faith seems to be more in God giving, making their life good now and giving them good things now rather than their faith being in that Jesus has died and paid for our sins and so will be spared God's wrath at the judgment. And so when things go badly, they think something's going wrong. But I think Bible-believing Christians who focus on the death of Jesus will rejoice in God's salvation even amidst the worst suffering and loss. doesn't mean it's not painful, obviously, but we trust God not for a good life now, but to save us from his wrath to come. So if you trust in Jesus, you have been forgiven your sins. You will be spared God's wrath at judgment. That is 100% sure. And so if you're focused on Jesus' death, you can rejoice in God's salvation always and no matter what happens. Well, finally and uh, briefly, Habakkuk finishes there in verse 19 by speaking of the strength that God gives him now. He says, God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. It's saying God will give us the strength now. By his Holy Spirit he will strengthen us to climb the heights, as it were, that verse is saying, to overcome every obstacle in our way. God will get us to the end as we keep trusting in him. Well, we've come to the end of this great little book of the prophet Habakkuk. And we're reminded in this chapter that God is not impotent. He's not powerless to act. He doesn't sit back in silence while evil flourishes. He will come in power and might and furious anger to judge all evil in this world. He's not immoral. It's not that he doesn't care. He's not unable to stop the evil. He is angry with sin. He hates evil. He will come and judge it and he will bring an end to all of it. But in the meantime, as we wait for Jesus to return, as we wait for God to do that, we need to learn these lessons that Habakkuk learned. We need to do what he did and to turn to God in prayer. We can even pour out our complaints to God. When we suffer, we need to trust God by praying to him. And we need to live by faith as Habakkuk did, to wait patiently for God to come and save. And we need to keep trusting in Jesus for no matter what happens, we can always rejoice in God's salvation because God did come and act and he gave Jesus to die for you and for me. So we know we are forgiven our sins and we can rejoice in God's salvation always as we wait patiently for Jesus to return. Let me pray and then we'll take questions. We do thank you, our Heavenly Father, so much for giving your dear Son Jesus for us. We thank you that he has paid for our sins, that he's drunk down the cup of your wrath that we know we deserve. Please help us to trust in what you have done for us through Jesus. Please refine and grow our faith in him that we would wait patiently for his return and in the meantime rejoice in your great salvation. And we thank you for Jesus in his name. Amen. Well, again, any questions or comments, please feel free and uh, don't hold back. Uh, as I keep saying, if you've got a question, it's uh, likely that several other people do too and they'll be glad you asked.
this isn't a um, question, it's a, a comment that follows on. We had um, recently a visit from a, a minister who heads up a Bible college in Burma. And one of the things he was saying to me is Habakkuk all over. He was, he was saying he did not want us to pray that they did not have persecution. They rejoiced in the fact that they had persecution because the gospel was spreading throughout Burma in ways that it had never um, had the opportunity to before. And that really put that it into perspective, didn't it? Yeah. We take things so easily as though everything has to be done right. Yeah. And he saw it from Habakkuk's point of view and it was fabulous. Yeah. Thanks for that. I wonder if you'd uh, care to comment. Uh, you've mentioned a couple of times today possible terrorism in Australia. Could you comment on the fact that as a nation we have abandoned the perhaps Christian heritage, if you want to put it that way, same as the rest of the Western world, and following on from what God did um, for the Jewish people in the way of uh, judgment because of their abandonment. I know we're not the chosen people like they were. Do you see possibly um, God using Islam to as his judgment on the West and on the church? Yeah, thanks. Uh, well, I'm not a prophet, so I, I can't read the future. Um, but I was saying to a few people before, I'm um, uh, part of a group from the Bible College of Victoria, or now MST, called... Um, the Centre for the Study of Islam and Other Faiths. So I, I teach on Judaism in that and I'm on, on their board. And uh, the other people who teach in that and are on the board are all uh, experts in Islam and it, it's fascinating to hear what they say. Um, uh, I, I don't think they're alarmist and there's no need to be alarmist about Islam. But Islam, uh, I think what you see on TV is often not right and I'm certainly sure of that. But uh, also Western governments are very naive about Islam. They do have an agenda. Uh, they do want to take over Australia, bring in Sharia law and uh, claim Australia for Islam. And uh, we shouldn't be naive about that. So while it's true that not all Muslims are fanatical or terrorists or anything like that, um, Islam itself uh, does lend itself towards world conquest. Uh, it is a... Uh, a religion of violence that's there in their own documents. Um, so terrorists might be extreme, but it goes along with Islam. And uh, I think Australia is moving further and further away from Christianity. We're becoming more and more like what you read in the New Testament of the first century uh, Roman Empire. Uh, it's fantastic to see the gospel spreading in other parts of the world, in Asia and Africa and uh, China and so on and so we can rejoice that the gospel is spreading in those parts of the world but it's very much receding from Europe and uh, from Western countries like Australia. So I would have thought things could only get worse and uh, I would be surprised if God doesn't judge us in Australia for that. So I'm um, not particularly optimistic about the future. I think we need to go for it with the gospel in terms of evangelism while we can because I think the time will come pretty soon where that will no longer be the case. But it's great to see God being at work in other countries. Martin, uh, thank you for that. I've got a comment, more so than a question, but if you'd like you to comment on it, if you want to. Um, as you were talking about 
patiently waiting for God to come in judgment, I was just reminded of a text that I I thought fitted with that very nicely and it's um, Paul speaking in, I think it's Acts 17, where he says, God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world and he's appointed a man that will be that judge and so now he calls all men everywhere to repent. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought that fitted with that. No, that's good. Oh, I do want to comment because it goes with what I um, just said before and my understanding of that is that once Jesus has come, there's really nothing else to do except for the gospel to go out. So I read that verse as saying that it's like God's put the pause button on so that the resurrection has begun with Jesus. He puts the pause button on before the rest of us are raised from the dead and face him in judgment and the only thing left to happen is for the gospel to go out, which is what we're here for. Would you consider that the the Christian organisation is in a competent position to bring to the world and the general population the things that you have been discussing today, given that it has a great lack of unity and a differences of opinion in interpretation of the Bible mm. and so on? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Um, oh boy, how do you answer that? You know, I don't want to be negative and bag out God's people, his church. Um, so God can raise up his people to do whatever he wants us to do. And yet on the other hand, often God's people have gone astray and been judged for it. Uh, and again, I think that our country in Australia and Western countries in general are moving so far away from the gospel because it's, it's not just that people out there are rejecting the gospel, but I think our churches are losing confidence in the gospel. So um, uh, uh, I guess in being in Tasmania, I can say something about Melbourne and get away with it for once. But uh, having come from Sydney, Sydney's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but the um, Anglican church I've come from in Sydney is very strong uh, in that it really trusts in the Bible and stands stands uh, firmly on the truth of the gospel and the Bible and my wife and I were quite shocked when we came to Melbourne that um, there are loads of Christians, lovely Christians, they want to hear the Bible taught but it seems that almost most of the denominations, churches and whole denominations have lost confidence in the Bible. So um, churches seem to be going along with the trends in society, uh, rejecting parts of the Bible that seem to be uh, perhaps too harsh by our society's modern standards and it just seemed to me that churches have lost confidence in the Bible and if we're not confident in the Bible and the gospel and what it says then yeah we're not going to have much impact on the world and that's very much what I see happening in Melbourne. So in Sydney which is known as being far more godless I guess than Melbourne, uh, the church and the gospel and Christianity are constantly in the news because the church is very loud in its proclamation. In Melbourne you just never see anything about Christianity or the church in the general news and uh, we, we find that shocking. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a great rebuke in store as well for the church. We really do need another reformation in the West at least.